We are preaching through a short series called Centered, and um, the last three weeks, this is the final message on that and what it means to be centered on the gospel. So uh, we've looked at the foundation of the gospel as the center of all we do. We, we looked at the glory of the gospel. Eric preached it so well as we celebrate and prize the gospel. Last week, uh, or two weeks ago, we looked at the mission of the gospel and as that pertains to children's ministry. And today we're going to look at how the gospel drives biblical community. So I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And we will be looking at verses... 23 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, 23 to 25. Now, I know we preached through Hebrews, and uh, maybe some of you were around when we were in chapter 10, which felt like five years ago. Um, but you know what? It's always God's Word, and the, God's Word still speaks today. And uh, Even if you were here for the message on these verses, you know what? I don't even remember what I preached on last. So I'm sure you don't remember what somebody preached on several months ago. So it's it's easy to forget and it's just so good to be reminded um, from the scriptures. So let's look at this together. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, we ask you to help us understand this, help us see the the good, the joy that you're calling us to in this passage this morning. So bless the preaching of your word. May it be fruitful. May it impact our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And guys, I'm still getting a ring up here, so you could just bring that, bring it down just a little bit more. It just feels pretty loud up here. Um, all right, well, as we come to this passage, um, I want to tell you a, a story. When I was in eighth grade, um, we took a, cl- a class trip to a place called Ship Island which is off the coast of Mississippi. And it truly is an island out in the middle of, the no- of nowhere. You have to take a ferry to get to this island. I have, actually have a picture of it. it. It doesn't look like this anymore since Katrina, but this is a, a picture before Katrina, um, which is when I went. So um, that's it. I mean, it's out there. And so we, we took a class trip there. And um, I actually grew up growing the beaches, so I was very familiar with how it works and this phenomenon called the undertow. And what's so crazy about undertow is that you can be playing in the water and riding waves and, um, and think the whole time that you're staying perpendicular to the beach where you set your stuff and everything, but the undertow can move you a hundred yards down the beach without even realizing it. You don't even realize that it moved you. An hour later, you're a hundred yards down from where you started. It's, it's, it's very tricky. Well, on this particular trip, we didn't have boogie boards, so I was just wave diving and doing my own thing and having fun. And eventually, I got separated from the group, um, which wasn't so bad because it was fairly shallow and I could always walk back in. And so I just continued to play. But then because of the undertow, I had drifted into water where I could no longer stand. And so I began to doggy paddle and... As I'm doggy paddling, I'm noticing the beach is getting further away, and I'm drifting further away from the group. And I, I'm telling myself, I got this, you know, no big deal. There, no, no lifeguards, no boogie boards. Um, who knows where the adults were on this whole trip because it was crazy things happening. Um, but that's, that's what happened. But as an eighth grader, you know what? The last thing I was going to do is call out for help and say, help, I'm, I, I'm not, everything's getting further away. I'm not going to do that. Then things took turn for the worse. And by this point, I'm getting scared. And my right leg cramps up under all that exertion. So now I'm getting really scared. And my left leg kicks into overdrive. And, and I'm doggy paddling on one leg, two arms. And then my left leg cramped up. Now, 
I'm fighting for my life with only my arms to keep me afloat as waves are just crashing over me. Now, there have been only two times in my life where I was genuinely afraid that I was going to die. And this was one of them. Before I knew it, I was so far from the group that they didn't even recognize that I was missing. (laughs) And I couldn't even get their attention if I tried. I I was sure, this is it. I'm going to drown. Somehow, the the Lord enabled me to make it to land. I got up on the beach and almost passed out from exertion. I laid there in the sand, crying, scared to death, so shaken up about how close I had come to death by drowning. I I thought that would never happen. But that is the power and danger of drifting. And drifting away is a constant concern in Scripture. And the phenomenon of spiritual drift is similar to what I experienced that day. See, drift seems fine at first until your leg cramps up and you're in deeper water than you can handle and the waves just keep crashing. And the same is true spiritually. We all know the tug of sin on our hearts, the undertow of temptation that lurks not far beneath the surface of our hearts. And if we're not laying hold of the things that God has designed to protect us from drift, we will drift. So the question today, how does God intend us to guard against drifting? The book of Hebrews has been concerned about this uh, from the beginning of the book. In fact, Hebrews 2.1 is in your notes. It says, therefore, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention. Why? Because we might drift away from it if we don't. The writer wants the believers to endure to the end, to not drift away from the Lord. So repeatedly in the book, and especially here in chapter 10, he calls them to Jesus. You can just look at verses 19 to 23, where he's, he's calling them to Jesus, this great priest. And he not only calls them to Jesus, but he calls them to one another in verses 24 and 25. Did you know that the Bible actually presents gospel-centered community? And I mean vital, real connection to that community as a main way we protect ourselves from drifting. Did you realize that? True, vibrant, biblical, gospel community is meant to actually protect you from drifting. Think about it. By God's very design, all on your own, you will not be afforded the protection you need to persevere to the end. The undertow is way too strong, and it's pulling at you constantly. It's pulling you away from God's design. It's pushing you into your own little privatized world. But, oh, Christian, you were made for a people, a new spiritual family that would nourish you and protect you and remind you of the gospel. And that's what this passage calls us to. So the main point is that to be gospel-centered is to embrace biblical community. We've been looking at what it means to be gospel-centered and what all the things that looks like. And it also means, being gospel-centered means we embrace biblical community. Gospel centrality actually drives us into biblical community. And on the flip side, in fact, to the degree that you find yourself withdrawing from fellowship, you're actually drifting away from the gospel itself rather than being centered on it. And we don't want to do that. And so I want to to help you see from these verses how God intends for biblical community to be a way to keep us centered on the gospel. So what does it mean to embrace biblical community? Point number one, it means we hold fast to our hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I realize we're, we're just dropping into a command, and it's dangerous to do that if we don't see the context of, of what came before it. So here, the great reality undergirding all of this is that we have confidence to draw near to God because Jesus has opened the way for us. You see it in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that Jesus opened for us through the curtain. And then you you see this explained. And then in verse 22, he says, So let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith. So how can we, who are sinful and defiled and unworthy, how can we draw near to a holy God who is perfect in righteousness? 
perfect in holiness? How can that happen? Well, Jesus opened the way for that to happen by dying on the cross and for paying the penalty that we all deserve to pay because of our sins. He did it. He opened the way. And in so doing, He granted us access to the Father. We don't get there on our own merits and our own achievements, our own goodness. No, we get there because there is a new and living way that Jesus opened up for us. You see this in verses 17 and 18 where it says, then he adds. Actually, let's start in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sat down? Done. The work of redemption clocked out. He did it. He completed it. It's over. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. What Jesus completes is completely done. We sing a song about that. And that is good news for the believer. And what does that mean? It means, jump down to verse 17. It means that Jesus can look at us now. God the Father looks at us and sees what Jesus did on our behalf. And he says, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Oh, that's good news. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. Why? Jesus paid it all. He did it. There's no other sacrifice, there's no other offering that you can bring that contribute to, it, contribute to this. So, that, look in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, therefore. In other words, oh, in light of that great, rich gospel truth, in light of that life-changing truth, therefore, since all of that is true, let us draw near. Now, if you haven't taken in the goodness of this, just take a moment and do that. Think about your own sins. Maybe you've not come to Jesus in this way before. Maybe you've thought that it was your own good works, that you just had to make yourself better, that you need to do, be more moral or make better choices or become a better you, and that once that happens, well, now God can get to a point where He can accept me. Oh, no. No. Jesus is the only one that opens the new and living way to God the Father. Apart from that... We are all, every one of us, cut off, abiding under the wrath of God in need of a Savior. And if that's you, you can come to Jesus today and make him your, ask Him to be your Savior. Confess your need. Confess your sin. Turn from self-reliance. Turn from your own self and your own ways. Repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus. He invites every one of us to do that. And for those of us who have done that, we have this great truth undergirding everything that goes forward. We have been sprinkled clean, it tells us. We have been given a whole new righteousness. We've been given hope. And so when we get to verse 23, we come to this next command. Not only do we draw near, but we hold fast its confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering. And the word really means without swerving to the right or to the left. Hasn't this been the temptation of the people of God throughout history? This is always, if you find yourself swerving spiritually, you're in good company. This has always been our problem. God's people have always and constantly been tempted to turn to fig leaves and golden calves and Asherah poles and bales and horses and chariots and power and wealth and sexual deviancy and military strength. And the whole story of the Old Testament, in fact, is God calling his people back to himself, actually bringing them back to himself by rescuing them from themselves. That's the story of the Old Testament and promising that one day he's going to send a redeemer who will once and for all break the power and curse of sin, who will establish a new covenant community written in his own blood and he will be their God and they will be his people. And verse 17 again, and he will declare over them, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We sang about it this morning and the, the spirit spoke to us through Rachel sharing that word that we are forgiven. That has been pronounced over us through the blood of Christ. And that's what Jesus, that's what God promises to do throughout the Old Testament. Because he knew, he saw, and we look and we see that witness. The temptation is to drift. The temptation is to waver. But we're called here to hold fast to confession of our hope without wavering. See, the reality of drifting or wavering, it's constantly upon us too, isn't it? This exhortation is to cling to the hope that you have in the gospel. Like, like you would cling to the steering wheel while driving down the highway. 
when you just left the hospital because you just had your first child and the baby's in the back seat. Well, you're not, you're not speeding then, are you? You're not on your phone then, are you? You're going down the highway carefully, not swerving. Even when everybody around you is going 20 miles over the speed limit. No, you're clinging to this hope that way. You're clinging to it like your life depends on it because it really does. Our grip on the gospel shouldn't look like we're texting while we're driving. No, we cling to that sucker without wavering. This is, this is what's going to save us. This is what keeps us. And this is what the passage calls us to cling to. Why? Verse 23, second half. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Boy, that's good news. It's not up to your grip. Oh, you're, you're called to grip it. Cling to it without wavering, it says. But it's not ultimately your grip that's going to save the day. For he who promised is faithful. He will see to it that the work he completed in you will be brought to completion. That's where our hope comes from. And in fact, the next chapter, you know, chapter 11, is a whole story of God's faithfulness working through the faith of his people. Giving us all kinds of reason to look to him who is faithful and to cling to that hope. And we need to see that to help us stay the course and to not drift or waver. So that's point one, that we hold fast to our hope. Now, as we come into point two, which is based in verse 24, he turns to the, the horizontal dimension of this reality. And I want us to make sure we don't miss the connection. So hold fast to our hope, verse 24, and then consider how to stir up one another. So one seems like a, a thing I and God do, and then verse 24 seems like a thing I do with other people. What's the connection? Is he just randomly transitioning? Well, here's the connection, and it's very important. If we have been cleansed and our sins have been forgiven, then we have all been granted access to God on the basis of Jesus' death, not our performance. And this truth should turn us outward to one another. That's how he gets there. All the things we just talked about. To do what verse 24 and 25 is calling us to do requires an understanding of what has been accomplished for us in Jesus. Let's unpack this a minute. Um, every time we share in communion, which we're going to do today at the end of the service, uh, we celebrate this reality. That we have been not only reconciled to God, but in so being reconciled to God, he's reconciled us to one another. So if all these wonderful truths in this chapter, oh, if they really landed on a people, how might that transform the way they relate to one another? This hope, which the gospel establishes us for all, paves the way for vibrant biblical community. Think about it. It has the power to free us from putting on a front. To free us from being embarrassed about our own failures or struggles. From suffering in silence. From being afraid of others finding out the real you. And a host of other things that tend to keep us from embracing biblical community. Look, I realize for some of us, the idea of biblical community and being in close relationship with people in your church is a scary, daunting, maybe painful thought. Maybe some of us have had bad experiences with that. You've opened your heart to someone. You've been hurt and wounded by that. Oh, again, the solution, though, is to see the gospel how it undergirds us, how it propels us back into community. And here's how. In the gospel, we're reminded that, you know what, we're all sinners. Every one of us, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so that frees us, actually, to acknowledge our sin and not hide it. There's a, a children's song that's put out by Sovereign Grace Kids. I love the, the chorus of it. It says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord and admits his sin. And in the end of the chorus, it ends with, Jesus died, so I don't have to hide anymore. What great, great words. In the gospel, we're reminded that we have access to God on the basis of Jesus and not our performance. And that frees us from having this pressure, like we've got to impress other people. No, we don't. We, we, we both have access to God on the basis of what Jesus has done, not our performance or lack thereof. In the gospel, we're reminded that we deserve hell apart from Jesus. And when we remember that, boy, that's going to protect us from looking down on others judgmentally, won't it? See how the hope that we have in the gospel really should pave the way for vibrant biblical gospel community. 
That's why being gospel-centered means embracing biblical community. We cling to this hope, this hope, without wavering, and we work to help others do the same. So how do we do that? So that's how we get to verse 24 and point number two. We stir up each other to love and good works. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us consider how. See, it's not just that we're called to do it, just stir each other up to love and good works somehow. It's not going to happen automatically. That's the importance of the first part of that phrase. We actually have to consider how to do this. That that is to say, it, it takes careful thought and intentionality. We begin to think of ourselves and our own agendas less and think about and consider the needs of others more. That's part of becoming more Christ-like. Joshua read it at the beginning of service, and I want to reference it again here, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. It's there in your notes, where we're commanded to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, it's not in your notes, but verse 5 goes on, Have his mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? And then it shows us how Jesus did that. You see, so becoming more Christ-like means turning less into ourselves and, and more to the needs of others. That's how Jesus lived his life. That's what he's called us to do as, as well. And when we do that, people will be stirred up to do the same. They're inspired. Their faith is built. They're provoked. There is a sanctifying effect that we can have on each other when we're living out our faith. When I say living out our faith, I don't mean as spiritual giants showing up and saving the day. But no, living out our faith, including living it out in transparency. Living it out in dependency. As we help each other look to Jesus. I can't help but think about people who stir me up to love and good works. When I'm around our partnering pastor in Nepal, who I will not name for security reasons, my faith is so stirred up. I'm provoked to live out my own faith the way he lives out his. I see the way he considers the needs of other people and moves into action, and I'm convicted of my own selfishness. I see his heart to share the gospel and to want to, and, and it makes me want to, grow, want to grow and just be more like that. Or I see how Pastor Billy tirelessly gives of himself to serving our church. And I'm provoked to do the same. In our leadership meetings, or even recently on our team retreat, I see how he walks in humility. Being willing to receive feedback and challenges from the team, and in particular, younger guys <laughs> than he is. And, uh, and he receives that, and it's feedback, criticism about ways he can grow and how he doesn't get defensive when we have those discussions. But he clings to the hope he has in Jesus. And man, I'm convicted about my own defensiveness at times. And I want to grow to be more humble like him. You see how his, his living out his Christian life and transparency and dependency has a way of stirring me up to want to love better to walk in the good works that God calls me to. Or a few weeks ago, I, we met with the discipleship group leaders and their assistants in Pastor Billy's home, which, by the way, we're, we're doing that, did it October, November, December. We're just meeting with the discipleship group leaders um, to ha- basically have our own small group meeting as we're preparing to roll out small groups in January. Um, so we met with these leaders and assistants, and as people shared, we were all just provoked and challenged. Different people opened up about their own struggles and ministry started to happen. I can truly say God was among us. During the prayer time, there were timely, specific, human words that God spontaneously brought to mind. That's our definition of New Testament prophecy. If you sat through our new members class, um, we make a careful distinction between prophecy as it functions in the New Testament and prophecy as it functions in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's timely, specific human words that God spontaneously brings to mind. We experienced that this morning through what the Lord put on uh, Rachel's heart as she exhorted us and prayed. 
Um, that's the gift of prophecy, functioning in the gathering of the church. Wonderful thing. It's a wonderful way God, God highlights himself. And he speaks to us through truth, rooted in scripture, communicated through human words. That happened that night in the meeting. I think we were all built up and encouraged and stirred up in love for each other and to press on in our faith and to press into biblical community. So listen, no matter who you are, how strong or how weak you think you are, when you're centered on the gospel, when you're leaning in to God's people with intentionality, God will use you to stir up love and good works in other people. Now for this to happen, we need contexts outside of the Sunday gathering. As important as Sunday is, I, I say it this way, it's only one side of the corporate sanctification coin. So we need Sunday gathering. We've had a whole uh, sermons about why we gather. Uh, a, a church must assemble together, and we do that. But it's only one side of the corporate sanctification coin. The Bible exhorts us to be in one another's lives, actually. To be in community, to minister to one another. To spur one another on in the mission. Why? Because if we don't, we will drift. We will not endure. We will make shipwreck of our faith. And so we need, we need one another. Think of all the one another's in the Bible. Those are not happening right now while God is addressing us through his word and one person speaks and others listen. So how can we provide context for the one another's of scripture to really be lived out practically? Well, that's where th these verses today are really foundational for how we think of small group ministry. As I mentioned in January, we'll be launching discipleship groups as one of the ways we're seeking to provide a context for you to experience this, to experience biblical community. The task and challenge for each of us is to, as verse 24 tells us, to consider. Consider how you can position yourself for the stirring up of love and good works in others. The next verse, verse 25, warns us against the opposite of this, about not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And so from that, we get my third point, which is that we meet together for mutual encouragement. So just quick recap. So how do we embrace biblical community? One, we hold fast to our hope. Two, we stir each other up to love and good works. Three, we actually meet together for mutual encouragement. It, it happens. It says here, again, to do this, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Again, the reason we do this is the reality of drift and the power of sin. The very wording warns us that meeting together can be neglected. That is, it, it can just slip down on the priority list. I think that since the, the pandemic and lockdowns and all this kind of stuff, many professing Christians and churchgoers have found it very easy, even, even more convenient, to neglect meeting together, despite this warning in Hebrews. But it's not just that. It's not just the ease at which neglecting to meet together is available to us and how easy it is for us to do that. It's not just that. The world, the flesh, and the devil are actually conspiring against us to push us into ourselves. This is what the doctrine of sin reminds us of. That this reality. We live, and not only is it the world, the flesh, and the devil, but in particular, we live in an increasingly individualistic age. This hyper-individualism is all around us. And I believe it actually pushes Christians to privatize their faith, sometimes in ways that we're not aware and in so doing, that's that, that's that undertow pulling you out of community and into a situation where you think you're fine. It's a dangerous place to be. We think we can privatize our faith. We can try to be a Christian in isolation. And in fact, some may even begin to view church as a means towards a, a particular personal end of self-fulfillment, of becoming a better you. And the church helps me get there. It's still a privatized version of faith because as soon as the church fails to deliver or you find a more efficient way of getting that, then you'll jump ship from this and jump into that. This is the kind of thing the Bible is warning us against. The, per the, the church does not exist for that. And so what 
if we come expecting that, what can the church do for me? How can the church serve me? Then it's easy to get disillusioned and begin to fade out, to begin to isolate ourselves. Proverbs 18.1 issues this warning. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Notice the connection between isolation, selfish desires being pursued, and the fallout from that, which is breaking out against all sound judgment. There are consequences to allowing our lives to be driven by selfish desires. But we're commanded here not to isolate ourselves, to not neglect meeting together, and we're warned actually that this is habit-forming. So being centered on the gospel means we guard against neglecting biblical community as well. That is, we don't want to tolerate the habit of decreasing involvement. This is a sobering reality. It really shows the power and deceptiveness of sin, the way it describes it here. Because it says, it uses the word neglect, and look at it in verse 25, and habit. When something is neglected over time, it's easy for that to become a habit, isn't it? God creates biblical community, contexts where all these one another's can be practiced as a way to preserve our souls and protect us from the drift, protect us from neglect, protect us from developing habits that just become normal and, and commonplace for us. This is how I think of small groups. This is how we as leaders think of the priority and the importance of small groups. If you ask me why small groups, I could probably give you a book-length answer. Ask my wife. Most answers are book-length, right? And uh, she's looking for the, she's looking for like the, the business card size answer, and I'm giving her the book-length answer. I can give you a book-length answer of why small groups, or I can give you a sermon-length answer of why small groups. That's what I'm trying to do now. I could give you a blog-length answer, But if I had to answer it in one word, why small groups? What would that word be? If I asked you, why small groups? Why are small groups important? What, if you had to answer it in one word, what would it be? You know what my word would be? Sin. (laughs) Why small groups? Sin. Because I feel its tug and push and pull every single day. It's the reality of sin that works to bring me down and to turn me away from the living God. I feel that. We sing, uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We, we feel this reality. It's why we need biblical community because on my own, I'm drifting, man. I'm wandering. I'm not staying the course. I'm swerving. I'm not holding fast without wavering. I'm loosening my grip and, the, and I begin to swerve and I'm all over the road. And before long, I'm going to wreck it. I need you. I need, I need the one and others. I need the body. I need to be in community. And yes, I have my Bible and praise God for that. I have the gift of my wife and the gift of my pastor and the gift of preaching and the gift of every Sunday morning. And Hebrews points to all of those good things as ways we guard against drift. And those are all absolutely critically important for us enduring to the end. But it shows us here that meeting together with other believers is just as essential for my sanctification and my preservation. I can't do it on my own. Or more accurately, God has not designed me to do it on my own. By his sovereign design, think about that, by his sovereign design, right here, verse 25, by his sovereign design, meeting together for mutual encouragement is his game plan to make sure you finish strong. It's not like, well, if you sign up for this service, then uh, we will change your filters every month on your air conditioner and it'll just be a lot easier. You'll have better air. We recently did this. I didn't sign up for the service. But anyway, this is, not, this is not a command like, yeah, it'll just be a lot easier if you do this. No, God has designed it that the way you're going to be preserved to the end is, is in biblical community. The sharpening, the refining, the sanctifying that comes about from the one another's, from people gathering together regularly for mutual, mutual encouragement. Not only should we not tolerate decreasing involvement, it says we should be meeting together for mutual encouragement all the more, actually, as we see the day drawing near. I, w- I wish we had time to go into that, but as time marches on, biblical community should become an increasing priority in your life and schedule. Because you know what? One day, 
We're going to gather with all these people around the throne. And we will be God's people. Gathered together in God's place. Enjoying God's rule and reign together. And so, for the writer of Hebrews, anticipation of that day compels us to move towards some of that now. We want some of that now. We don't move away from that. We know that day is coming. And as we see it, it sobers us. It makes us long for it. And it pushes us towards one another. And it helps us resist the temptation to pull away from one another. And again, just being honest, that that temptation is in all of us. Now, you may wonder, yeah, but all this stuff about community and gathering and being around people, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. Well, let me encourage you. You're a Christian fundamentally. And the one another's of Scripture are universally applied to all of God's people. Paul doesn't write to the extroverts in Ephesus or Galatia. He writes to the saints in these places. We all need the body and we all need to be in community. And where these extra-biblical categories, introvert, extrovert, may be helpful in helping us identify where we may be tempted to sin, yeah, I think it's helpful in that regard. Think about that. So if, you're more, if you consider yourself more of an extrovert, you may be tempted to make an idol out of being with people or seeking people's approval. Extroverts, uh, the, the energy they derive from being around other people can actually become like a, a drug that makes them desperate for their next fix. They need to pursue biblical community without making it an idol. So the, the idea of extroversion, introversion is, is helpful in that it helps us identify where we may be tempted Introverts may be tempted to make an idol out of self-protection and isolation. Their feelings of introversion and the emotional energy spent on being with people can, if they're not careful, can become an excuse for actually avoiding biblical community altogether. They need to pursue biblical community without making an idol out of their own comfortable, safe version of what it should look like. So, biblical community is the call for all of us. We may be tempted to neglect it in different ways, We may be tempted to withdraw into isolation. We may be tempted to make an idol out of people and people's approval. But either way, we're called into biblical community. And we're called to guard against these other sinful expressions that encroach on how we're to be walking this out. I think my wife, Danielle, is a great example, really, of how to pursue biblical community when when you're someone who considers yourself an introvert. And I did get permission to share this. So uh, she's good with it. But her consideration of herself as an introvert doesn't hold her back from biblical community. In fact, the Lord used her wonderfully the other night uh, in our meeting with the discipleship group leaders. She may fight nervousness and sometimes the very thought of the meeting, if you're an introvert, you know there's like the very thought of it, it's coming, it's coming, uh, is more anxiety producing than when you show up and you're actually there. And then you're like, ah, okay, it wasn't that bad. But like the, the anxiety leading up to it is worse than the thing itself. But you know, she holds fast to the confession of hope. She walks in love and good works. She, she keeps a prayer journal and prays for people in our church, and carries them in our heart. She's often in tune with what people are struggling with. And you know what? She shows up. I mean, Half the Christian battle, I've heard it said, is showing up. Just show up. And she shows up, and God uses her in powerful ways. And though it may be a little draining on one hand, God has designed it so that when you pour yourself out for other people, He's actually refilling you. There's a joy that comes from spending and being spent for Jesus. She feels that. So introverts, you can embrace biblical community too. No matter who you are. This, this text calls you to not neglect meeting together. We all may have differing capacities for how much we can do that. And maybe you prefer a smaller group instead of a group of 100 people. And, and all of that is fine. But it, none of that ever becomes a, get a, 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 an excuse for neglecting biblical community. We're all called not to neglect meeting together. Instead, second half of verse 25 encouraging one another. That's what we're called to. Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. For this writer, meeting together and encouraging one another are really the same thing. The reason you meet together is to encourage each other, so that you don't fall into the habit of not meeting. 
And that idea has been central to this book, as you may remember when we went through it. It showed up earlier in the book. Look in verse, uh, I've got this in your notes, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13. Take care, brothers, lest any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Man, just think about that. According to the Bible, one of the ways we protect ourselves and protect one another from being hardened by sin, which is drift, is by regularly exhorting one another. Now, it doesn't tell us how often or where we should meet or how many people should be there or how long we should meet for, what kind of snacks we should have, or what we should do about childcare. That's always a challenge, right? But it does tell us that this should be happening. See, small group ministry is not just a time to make friends. We hope that happens. It's not just a time to enjoy good drinks and snacks and decaf coffee. Thank you. We hope that happens. (laughs) It's not just a time to talk about truth and the Bible. We hope that happens. But exhorting one another in the gospel should mark our meetings. In our meetings, you're sitting there. You, you want to be asking yourself things like this. How can I help this person who's sharing something? How can I help this person not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Now, not all situations call for exhortation. Uh, some call for encouragement. And we want to be ready for both because the gospel brings both. And both work together to protect us from drift. In Hebrews 3, it's all about exhortation. Here in Hebrews 10, it's about encouragement. Not neglecting to meet one another, but encouraging one another. Then you jump forward to Hebrews chapter 12, and where we see this phrase in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Notice the commands that come before it. They're all plural verbs. If you're in your Bibles in Hebrews 10, just turn to chapter 12 with me real quick. I want you to see this. Chapter 12, if you start with verse 12, all the verbs in there are are plural yous. Okay, they're plural. So y'all or all of you are to lift your drooping hands. All of you are to strengthen your weak knees. All of you are to make straight paths and all of you are to strive for peace. Okay, so far so good. We could hear that and say, okay, he's just telling us we all need to do this on our own. Maybe. But then verse 15 comes in and this changes everything. All of you are to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So whose job is to make sure that this happens? It's the community itself. It's the ones to whom these commands are being issued. Your sanctification serves to sanctify the people around you. As you grow, it promotes the growth of others. The reason we do want to strive personally and do the things in those verses is in part for the good of others. Because God means to use that as an instrument to grow other people. So ask yourself this question. How are you doing making sure that your fellow church members obtain the grace of God? When you gather with others in discipleship group, you can be asking yourself, how can I help this person obtain the grace of God in this moment? I don't want to give them, I don't want them, I don't want them to give up in the race. I want them to endure to the end. I don't want them to check out. I don't want them to go astray. So how can I help them obtain the grace of God in this situation, in this moment? God is at work and I want them to see it. I want them to be strengthened by it. That they might endure to the end. That's what this is all about. This whole book has been about that. Jesus is better, therefore Make it. Make it to the end. Don't you want to endure to the end, church? I I so want to endure to the end. I want to be an older saint serving Jesus. And I want the person next to me in discipleship group to be an older saint serving Jesus. I want them to get there too. So let's run this race to the end. That's what this is all about. The goal of every Sunday and every discipleship group meeting is to make sure that we all die serving Jesus. Think of it that way. 
We want to die serving Jesus. We don't want to just get through this moment. We want to endure to the end. And God gives us community in small groups to make sure that happens. So why small groups? If my one word answer was sin, here's my one sentence answer. Why small groups? So I can die serving Jesus. I want to make it to the end of this race. Praise God for the saints who have gone before us, which is where chapter 11 goes. Praise God for John Nichols and people that we've seen serving Jesus until the very end. I want to be that. Don't you want to be that? Let's help each other be that as we embrace biblical community. So let me ask you, are you aware of the power and pull of sin in your own life? Are you aware of any areas in in your heart, life, or relationships where you've drifted away from the Lord and probably drifted away from other people? Oh, hear this text calling you back to the hope of the gospel. Start there. Remind yourself of why you can have hope and confidence and on the basis of what Jesus has done that you can draw near to God. Oh, and do it. Regain your center on the finished work of Christ and nothing else. And from there, commit to embracing biblical community. Make whatever changes you need to make to embrace it. Let the Bible sober you about the reality and subtleness and trickiness and power of sin. And confess to the Lord, Oh Lord, I need the people you've surrounded me with. Because to truly be gospel-centered means we embrace biblical community. Now, in, in wrapping this up, what practical steps can you take to walk out whatever the Lord may be showing you through our passage in Hebrews 10? Well, towards the end of this month, you'll have the chance to sign up for a discipleship group. And there will be three different groups meeting on different days and times. And so uh, these groups will kick off in January. So that's just an immediate action step that you can be on the lookout for and be thinking about. Um, So for, for now, between now and then, maybe this is just a conversation with your spouse where you commit together to get involved in one of these small groups because you realize the power of drift, the subtleness of sin. The tug where it's pulling you out to sea to drown you. And you don't want to go there. Maybe it's starting to think of ways you can serve or host a meeting or bring a snack or help plan and coordinate. Whatever it may look like, let's be asking the Lord to show us what part we can play in helping our church grow as a gospel-centered community. Let's pray and then we'll turn to communion. Lord, we do just pray and ask for your help to do this. Oh Lord, may your people see the joy and benefit of Uh, the preserving effect that pressing into biblical community will have on our own hearts, on our own walk with you, on the mission that you've called us to, to make your name known, to make your glory revealed and shine brightly in our worlds. Oh Lord, may we be compelled to look to you and to submit to all that you're showing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, a tangible way that we can celebrate the community that we do in fact have because of the gospel is by sharing the Lord's Supper together. So at this meal, we're reminded of two great truths that we heard today in the sermon. We've been reconciled and joined to God by the death of Jesus. Praise God. And we've been reconciled and joined to one another by the death of Jesus. Now, if this is not true for you and you've not trusted in Jesus alone as your Savior, or if you're not sure if you have, or even what that means. Well, the Bible would admonish you to just observe this meal, to not partake in it, actually. Maybe you already have the cup in your hand, but you can just hang on to it or leave it on the chair. But I would ask you not to take it because if you've not, not to take it if you've not trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior. Communion symbolizes that we, who were once sinners, cut off from God, have now been seated at his table. We've been seated with Jesus by faith in the work that he accomplished for us on the cross. The perfect holy God in whom there is no sin actually joins sinners to himself. How is this possible? Well, because Jesus has taken our sin away. And this bread and cup remind us of that sacrifice. It doesn't save us, but it's a picture and a symbol of the salvation we do have. It's a celebration of that. And by that same sacrifice, not only does he join us to himself, 
but he joins us to one another, which is why we share this meal together. No matter our background, no matter our income, white collar, blue collar, what race we are, what language we speak, anyone who has put their faith in Jesus, in Jesus alone, is able to sit at this table and share this meal. You've been joined to his family, and you get a seat at this table. There may be a lot of differences among us this morning, but... The two things that we have most in common are that we are before God sinners in need of a Savior. And because of Jesus, we are sinners who've been made righteous by that Savior, Jesus Christ. So the reason we do this is because the Lord commanded us to. So you can open the top part of your cup here. Communion, again, is a physical, visible picture of all these realities. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is why we do it. Jesus died. Our sins have been forgiven. He's been risen from the dead. He's saved us. He's joined us to God. He's joined us together to one another, and he will bring us all the way home. Jesus assures us that as we take this cup... We are remembering, we're proclaiming that cross work, that redemptive work. We proclaim it. So let's proclaim the death of Christ together and let's take the cup. Oh Lord, let's stand together. Joshua, you can bring the team. Lord, we thank you for this reality that we've been united to you through the death of Jesus on the cross. Oh, Lord, this is good news. We want to celebrate it, and we want the good of it to, to really permeate and infiltrate our lives and our community. Lord, we want to be a church that's marked by communities of disciple makers, gathering together, reminding each other of the gospel, caring for one another, and bringing the gospel to bear on all of our lives, because we know that by that you will preserve us to the end. And we just invite you to do that. Thank you for the picture that communion is reminding us of the union we have with you and the union we have with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.